In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on the military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever noticed how powerful symbols are? There's a lot of them, symbols. Uh, Here's one symbol. It's actually a very powerful symbol. Now, it might not be to you, but to other people, it's incredibly powerful. It's a family crest or seal. And that symbol speaks of honor and dignity, of high character. It was crafted by a group of people who wanted to represent what their family is or ought to be about. Next symbol, probably most of you would have a feeling for. Yeah, the uh, old stars and stripes there. As you look at that, it brings out in you certain things, especially when it's waving in the air. It says something about the place you live, the country that you may be committed to. Perhaps even as an immigrant, it says something about a land that you have inherited that's now your own. There's all kinds of things that that image evokes. But that's not the only image that evokes emotions and ideas and things like that. How how about this image? Ah, yeah. As a matter of fact, it brought a better response than the American flag, and it didn't. The IU logo, that image, it's actually a powerful image. For some of you, it means my school. For some of you, it means I hope I graduate. For some of you, it means as I look back, I remember my years at IU. For some of you, like me, who didn't go to IU, it means IU basketball or something like that. But it has meaning. As a matter of fact, that logo has a lot of meaning for fans of IU and IU basketball. I remember the first time when I came to Indiana and I went to a basketball game. Uh, They had this celebration, or uh, I guess I could call it a celebration at some point. The huge IU flag comes out on the floor, and the cheerleaders all surround the flag. You know what I'm talking about, that activity. And they all bow down in front of it with their pom-poms, and they raise up, and they bow down. And I thought, oh, my goodness. (laughs) I have entered another brave world here. Um, I tend to reserve those kind of adulations for God. And it seemed like to me we were worshiping IU basketball. Well, I've been here for 15 years, and it doesn't bother me quite as much anymore. Um, I've gotten over it. I enjoy the symbolism. I still kind of irk at it, but I scream and I yell and I clap and I do this at just the right time. The symbol means something, doesn't it? Symbols are huge, not just for us in our culture, but they were gigantic in the Scripture. 
especially in the Old Testament, the language of Hebrew is symbolic in a way that the language of Greek is not. Symbolisms are powerful, but let me suggest right up front before we look at this that we neglect gigantic symbols when we read the Scripture because very frequently we are literalistic in the way we look at text. And the text itself is inviting us into a different world. I want you to consider some of the symbols of the Old Testament that you know well. How about the tabernacle? Or later, the temple? How about the objects in the tabernacle or the temple? Each one of them was set aside for a particular purpose, and they symbolized something else other than just themselves. Oh, they were artifacts, they were real objects, but they pointed to something else. The lambs, the goat, the priesthood, with its vestments, everything was symbolic of something else. The Ark of the Covenant, you remember the description of the Ark of the Covenant, that chest-like thing, and it had angels, seraphim, cherubim, overarching it, and symbolically the presence of God rested on the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant. It wasn't to say that God literally rested there and nowhere else. He would be a pretty small God if that were literally true. But symbolically, it spoke concerning His holy presence. And you saw another symbolism of His presence with the people of God. A pillar of fire at night over the tabernacle and the dwelling place and a cloud by day. And when it moved, they moved. Gigantic symbols of God's grace and mercy. Or how about this one? You know it well. The Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. Which now in retrospect, with the help of John, we insert new words into the symbol. The Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Symbols are all around us in the Old Testament. One of the great symbols of the Old Testament is kings and cities. See, just like that, I move to a place where we don't get it, a place of discomfort for us. We don't have a king, and when we think of cities, the first thing that comes to mind is not righteousness. I remember when we lived in New Haven, Connecticut, and my kids were little, we periodically would take a wonderful train ride of about an hour and a half into the heart of New York City, Grand Central Station. It was a delightful time. We got to look at the city, the biggest, most amazing city in the United States of America. I would never want to live there, but it is grand. Most of the time, I didn't like the people on the street, but still, it's grand. It's New York. We would go downtown. We would look around. We would window shop. We'd get on the train, and we'd go back home. We were poor graduate students. We didn't have enough money to buy anything at FOA Schwartz store where all the toys were, but we could look and it was fun. But when I think of New York City, I don't think of high exalted righteousness. In the Old Testament, when God uses the image of kings, kingdoms, and cities, that's exactly what He's talking about. Let me put it to you this way. The kingdom of David, which was just read for us in short order, that we're going to follow for the next few weeks, The kingdom of David existed historically, but the kingdom of David 
was not about the kingdom of David. To put it another way, if this is the kingdom of David, here was the object. The kingdom of David stood for the purpose of pointing to the future. Pointing away from itself. We know a lot about the kingdom of David. It was a remarkably, well, big kingdom and mighty kingdom. David, unlike Saul, united the tribes of Israel in a new kind of way. Unlike Saul, they rallied around him in a dramatic way. Unlike Saul, he expanded the territory to the largest ever. He brought peace against the enemies of God. He wanted to build a a temple, but God said, no, that's not your place. That's the place of your son Solomon. You've been a man of war all your life. You've done a good job. But that job's for Solomon. You know, part of the history of the kingdom of David is it was incredibly human. Terribly human sometimes. The highs and lows of the humanity of the kingdom of David are guttural. You recoil at them. And you say, how could God use this kingdom as a symbol of the Messiah? But he did. With all its humanity and all its sinfulness. This kingdom of David spoke about Jerusalem a lot. It spoke about Mount Zion a lot. Mountains and cities are incredibly important in a symbolic way in the ancient world and in the history of the Old Testament. When David was seen as the king of Israel, he wasn't seen, it might seem that he was, but he wasn't seen as, seen as the exclusive king of Israel. David was seen as the viceroy to the king of kings and the lord of lords, the vice regent. He was the earthly king who stood in the position to be the king in light of the great king of glory. The people of God all the way back to the time of Moses spoke of God as the king of kings and the lord of lords. So David stood in that place, and he called people in his psalms to the delights of Jerusalem and Mount Zion. A high point in the nation of Israel, physically and spiritually. In the ancient world, frequently, people referred to the gods at the high point of mountains, ruling over all things. So you have images or symbols of kings and of kingdoms and of cities, and all of them point ahead to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Let me interject something at this point that will be controversial, but I can be known for that. One of the problems we have when we interpret Scripture, frequently when it comes to prophecy, is to translate everything literally. Or, to put it another way, to consider all the texts that relate to Zion and Jerusalem and all kinds of other images, symbolic images in the Old Testament, as entirely land-based and thoroughly physical. I will go out on a limb and say that there is no good precedent for that in the Old Testament. Oh, there is precedent for it. Israel did exist. The city of Jerusalem was the high point. All those things are true. But every one of those things, while true, are not about land of physicality. They're about the future. They're a symbol for what is to come. 
And sometimes, focusing on land and physicality, we forget the symbolism that's deeply embedded in the text. So the importance of mountains like Mount Zion and Mount Sinai, where God originally reigns and rules in that thunderous mountain are important. Ideas of kings and kingdoms are extremely important. And the notion of city is very important, symbolically in the Old Testament and in the life of David. These symbolisms find fulfillment in many ways in the teachings that we describe as the Gospels. When Jesus enters this world, he begins to talk about the Old Testament. He talks about it a lot. He reinterprets it a lot. That is, reinterprets it in light of the kind of teaching from the scribes and Pharisees. The New Testament and the Gospels make it clear from the very outset that Jesus is born in the lineage of David. That's very important. Why? Because it was promised that the Messiah would come from David. There's physicality. And Jesus is identified in those genealogies as being from the lineage of David. As a matter of fact, even called the son of David. He's described as a king, this is Jesus Christ, inheriting the kingdom of David and bringing to this world a subversive otherworldly kingdom. A kingdom that's really a lot different than the kingdom of David. A kingdom that is right parallel with the rest of the world, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of humanity. And he calls people within the kingdom of humanity to basically move to the kingdom of God. He says, come join this trajectory of history called the kingdom of God and walk through the kingdom of humanity as a member of the kingdom of God. I want you to make a move. This symbolism of a kingdom is huge for Jesus. When he enters Jerusalem... He fulfills many of the prophecies concerning king and kingdom in Jerusalem and Zion that are embedded in the Old Testament scriptures. And then when he enters there on that faithful Palm Sunday, he weeps over Jerusalem. Why? Because he can see the future. Because he knows this city of Zion, this city on a hill, this place where God has dwelled, this city, it's going to be destroyed. Not a stone's going to be left standing the way it once was. It's going to be burned and people are going to be killed. And Jesus looks at that city and he weeps over it. But you know, it's not just about the historical reality of the destruction of the temple and Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Jesus is looking at the city of Jerusalem and in effect, he's saying, it's really not about you. My kingdom really is not located on that hill. The reality of my kingdom, though we call it Zion, is so much bigger than this physical space. And I will watch the destruction of Jerusalem. And I will live for the eternal kingdom that has no end. And I will call people to walk with me in that kingdom. He was overwhelmed by that reality. He could see what others could not see. The symbolism of David's kingdom and the kingdom of Christ is reiterated in the book of Hebrews. We leave the Gospels and we advance all the way near to the end of the Bible itself and we run into this wonderful epistle written by this mysterious author that nobody knows. 
And he speaks about the Old Testament history and the symbolism of the temple, about the articles in the temple, about the process of slaying lambs and goats and bulls, about the blood of the covenant, about the veil, about all those things. And he reinterprets the whole thing in light of Jesus. And he says, we don't need the goats and the blood anymore. We got the blood of the eternal covenant. As a matter of fact, the temple was just a shadow pointing to the heavenly reality that is the temple of our living God. And Jesus Christ has come and fulfilled all that. Do you get it? Do you see the power of the symbol that once you thought so literal, now it's absolutely out there heavenly. It's incredible. I, I like to think, um, as we often describe it, that the book of Hebrews was actually first written as a sermon. And the preacher was preaching, and he was totally out of breath. He was overwhelmed by the reality that all these city images and king images and kingdom images and mountain images had been fulfilled in Jesus Christ and everything about the Old Testament was found in him. Now, here's something that's interesting about the writer of the book of Hebrews. He was probably writing to a group of people who had undergone or were about to undergo some significant persecution. And life might not have been that good for them. And so in Hebrews chapter 11, he says to him, I want to encourage you with something. Get this image, my friends. You're not alone. As you walk through this life, called to the things that the Old Testament covenant called you to and inheriting the things that the new covenant has given you, I know you can be discouraged, but I don't want you to fall. I don't want you to fail completely. I want you to strengthen your legs and your arms. I want you to strengthen your body. I want you to remember that you're not walking alone. That as you walk in this invisible city, this kingdom of God, you're walking with others. There's a great cloud of witnesses that have surrounded you. Many of them have gone before. And they're symbolically cheering you on your way. Don't give up. Keep up the work and keep your eyes singularly focused on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith who went to the cross for you, died for all the nastiness, not only of your sins, but of the sins of the whole world. He's going to make it right someday. Keep your eye on Jesus. The author of the book of Hebrews, he understands symbolism really well. But so does the author of Revelation. Because at the end of Revelation, in chapter 21 and 22... After the great plagues have been poured out by God, after the saints have undergone all kinds of excruciating persecution, he says, I want to remind you of something. You have walked through a lot of stuff, my, my friends, and I want to tell you, you saints, that there's a day coming where there's going to be a completely new heaven and a completely new earth. Because of Christ who has come before, I see out in the future a vision. It's symbolic of what will happen one day. There's going to be a new Jerusalem that's going to descend out of heaven. And it's going to be perfectly symmetrical. And it's going to look like a bedazzled set of jewels. 
And in that city, there will be no sin or sorrow. In that city, the perfection of God's presence will be real for the people of God. That day's coming. It's a new order. Everything is going to be turned upside down. All the chaos of creation that we now see is going to be ordered. And as a matter of fact, in a beautiful image, at the end of the book of Revelation, the author takes you all the way back to the beginning in the book of Genesis. And he says, in this city, there's going to be a river of life and a tree of life. Everything is going to be made perfectly new. My, what an encouraging word for a group of people who are struggling to follow God. He says, there's not going to be any more sun or moon because we won't need it. God will be in our presence. There will be no night because there will be eternal light in the presence of God, our Creator. And the temple, it'll be gone forever. You're in the heavenly temple now. This new Jerusalem is something we look forward to, and it was symbolized by the old Jerusalem. And here's what I want to say to all of you, like me, who are pilgrims. You're walking through this world. Here's what I want to say. Pilgrims, hang in there. Because the new Jerusalem is coming. Don't give up hope. Even when things get difficult. You know, I, um, I did a series on the book of Hebrews a long time ago now. And at the beginning of the, uh, one of the commentaries I used, there was a, a fictitious account of a young man called Antonius who I think in the words of this commentary author, and that's not really that typical of commentary authors to write as creatively as you're about to hear. Antonius, he gets it. Can I read you this story? Best I can. Antonius sat alone in a deteriorating second-story apartment located in a slum on a hill in Rome. The Rome pelted the age-worn walls outside, and a plate of bread and vegetables and a cup of sour wine rested on a makeshift table. The room had turned dark with the coming of the storm, and Antonius lit a light, an oil lamp against the gloom, and with that light, hungry roaches materialized and scampered into the dark safety of cracks in the walls. And In the apartment next door, a baby cried, and an infant's father screamed obscenities at the infant's mother. An urgent conversation rose and then faded away as some unseen pair of business partners walked down the stairs. Somewhere, in the muddy street below, a unit of Roman soldiers passed by, driven under the sharp orders of their commander. Antonia sat alone, thinking. That morning, his employer, a rough, burly man named Brutus, once again had turned the task of pricing fruits and vegetables into ridicule towards this young Christian. The verbal jabs became annoying, as annoying as gnats darting to and fro in the shop's pungent air. Brutus was big and obnoxious and cruel, and Antonius cringed against the man's emotional blows, wishing he could strike out and hurt and embarrass him. But each time, 
Each time he turned the other cheek. It received a slap in kind. Yet he bit his lip, nursed his wounds, his pride, and again asked the Lord's forgiveness for his thoughts. In recent months, the abuse of the church had escalated with the amused approval of the emperor himself. And now emotional fatigue was beginning to take its toll. Footsteps in the halls and a scream in the night and the meaningless events that nevertheless set Antonius's heart racing. Oh yeah, he'd been told about the cost of discipleship, of following the Messiah. But somehow, his experience was different than he'd expected. Because you see, in the beginning, he thought that his joy, that initial joy, would last forever. It would never be broken. He would always feel the presence of God. He'd been taught that the Lord was the righteous judge who would vindicate his new covenant people. He Did not the scriptures actually speak of a Messiah that said he was going to put all things under subjection under his feet? But the church had taken a great beating lately, and members of the various house groups had become discouraged and were questioning whether or not Christ was truly in control. In their hearts, they wondered if God had closed his ears to their cries for relief. Some in their disillusionment and doubt had left the church altogether. Antonius himself, he'd missed the weekly meeting and worship for at least the past two weeks, and his heart had begun to cool somewhat toward that little house group. But a spiritual itch in the back of his spirit warned him, and cautioning him concerning his lack of perspective, yet in recent days he'd begun to snuff out such thoughts from his mind as quickly as they came in. Antonius' bitterness over his current circumstances was growing and slowly obscuring the truth. But that night, the believers were to meet for worship and encouragement. And rumor had it that the leaders had received a document from back east somewhere. Although discouraged and tempted to skip the meeting again, Antonius' curiosity was aroused and he decided to travel the short distance to the neighborhood house at which the fellowship was to meet. Entering the gathering, he spoke greetings to several friends who looked tired from the day's work. The hostess offered something to drink and friendly banter began, but dejection hung like a cloud over the room. When the meal was finished, the group's leader a good, godly man of almost 70 years, finally arrived. Joseph was his name. A bit out of breath, having come from a meeting with other leaders halfway across the city. He was visibly moved as he stood smiling before the group of about 20, his hands shaking slightly from advanced age. After a few words of introduction, Joseph took a deep breath, and explained what he had talked to the other leaders about in the previous group as he unrolled the scroll. With a twinkle in his eye, he said, I think you might find this quite relevant. And he turned to the first part of the parchment and began reading with vigor. In the past... God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. 
But in this day, he has spoken to us by his son. The opening words to the epistle to the Hebrews. I cannot imagine hearing the letter for the first time had I been Antonius or someone like him. I hope that a light would have come on, that I recognized that the symbolism which was all over the Old Testament was now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And I would anticipate, which would be years later, another letter from the book of Revelation that would tell me that the end was not yet, but it was coming. And when it comes, it will be like nothing we've ever seen. Or to put it in the words of the revelator, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who sits on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy. And they're true. Pilgrims. That's what we are. Has this week um, weighed you down? Have the sins from without and perhaps more importantly the sins from within seem to have eclipsed the very grace of God that you know and believe in? Take heart, pilgrims. Keep walking. Because the symbol that you see in this Old Testament kingdom and in this New Testament kingdom will happen. And as you walk with him, you'll inherit the prize that you were made for. I hope you walk away from this place encouraged that God is alive and well in your life. And you'll wait wait for a day All of it will be made new. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your kingdom, your kingdom which is to come. The symbols of your kingdom in the Old and the New Testament are are beautiful, but they're very incomplete. We thank you for the beauty of them, Lord, and especially for the beauty that we see in the person of Jesus Christ when he was with us on this earth. But we long for the day, Lord, where the King of glory will make everything new. And until that day, Lord, give us the patience to walk with you. Allow us to surrender our own lives and our own agenda so that we can reach out to your kingdom 
that we can enter into it and walk with you. On some days, Lord, your presence feels remarkably real. It seems that we could go on unfettered by any sin or difficulty because we feel you near us. And on other days, it seems that you're so distant. And that's where faith is so essential, Lord. We pray that in the good days and in the bad, you will reinforce our faith in the way that only you can. May we continue to believe, not give up hope, and find great joy in the promise that you're going to make all things new, including us. Thank you for that day. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.